Okay, three, two, one. Oh my goodness. Good morning, good afternoon, whatever it is for you. I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Shomler. This is Strong Opinion Sports. Thank you so very much for tuning in. Today's Thursday, November 14th. And um, oh, I want to apologize. Uh, this episode has taken a long time. Uh, I had a personal issue I had to deal with uh, behind the scenes. It's resolved, and uh, I'm looking forward to making content. I just wanted to pay. I know it's been a while. It's been a long week for me. Um, I apologize. Uh, I'm doing an episode today and tomorrow. I, I have a lot of content planned. I had a, I just an issue I had to deal with. I'm not going to say any more than that. Uh, I love you guys. I appreciate you guys. I want to jump into this. Um, on Sunday Night Football, the Minnesota Vikings beat the Dallas Cowboys 28-24. to and uh, both quarterbacks had good games. You know, Dak Prescott was awesome, had some good throws. There was a throw on third and 12 down the right side. Then I was like, wow, that's a, that's a big-time throw. And Kirk Cousins, also, you know, was phenomenal for the Vikings. And before we get into the Vikings, because I was really impressed with, with what Minnesota did, I want to talk about Amari Cooper, the receiver for the Dallas Cowboys. He had 11 catches for 147 yards and a touchdown. And he just made play after play after play. Big catch. Uh, and, and I just, I, I was like, man, this guy's doing a great job. And I was critical of him earlier this year after the Saints and Dallas Cowboys game. I said that Amari Cooper wasn't physical enough. I know he was hurt. I was not impressed with what I saw. And man, did he shut me up very quickly on Sunday night, man, making play after play. And I just wanted to give him credit. Now, the one point of criticism I have for the Dallas Cowboys after losing on Sunday night football is there was a fourth and five play where... They threw the ball to their running back, Ezekiel Elliott. And it was such a weird turn of events because their, their number one receiver, Amari Cooper, was having a phenomenal game. It's fourth and five. It's a big moment, a big situation. And they didn't target him. And I just thought that was weird. Based on the flow of the game, the way things were going, I was like, why aren't you throwing to Amari Cooper in this situation? And it just didn't make any sense to me. And in my opinion, when you have a team not taking advantage of a good matchup, that's an oversight by coaches. It's a coaching issue. Now, Jason Garrett, the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys, did not take ownership for the mistake. He was very clear. He said, you know, Kellen Moore is the offensive coordinator. He's the one calling plays. He said, he felt like he had a good opportunity. He, 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 not me. Him, not me. It was very interesting. I've never seen Jason Garrett kind of shirk responsibility that way. And to me, it's Jason Garrett putting the blame on someone else. And I think beginning to feel the heat in Dallas, this is his 10th season. Right now his team is 5-4. and four. And in his 10 years, he's been, you know, he's 82, and, 82 wins and 63 losses, which isn't bad. But he's had a couple 8-8 eight and eight seasons, a couple disappointing years. And he's never really had, other than that one 13-3 year in 2016, he's never had the incredible breakout season everyone kind of in Dallas has wanted for him and from him. And I think it's possible that Jason Garrett, the way he kind of avoided that question and put the blame on Kellen Moore and the way the year is going so far, I think Jason Garrett's beginning to see, oh, this might be my last year in Dallas and it's starting to feel the pressure. And I just thought it was very uncharacteristic of him to, A, to put the blame on Kellen Moore instead of talking about it himself and say, you know, it's really on me. We got to be better in that situation. To blame someone else is very weird. And I really thought it was a coaching error, whatever, whether it's Jason Garrett or Kellen Moore, the offensive coordinator. It's some kind of problem that they didn't have a play call designed to target Amari Cooper at the end of that game, fourth and five, on a big primetime game. Now, 
Speaking of big primetime games, uh, I have been very critical of Kirk Cousins for a long time, talking about how in big moments he tends to shrink. Now, on Sunday night, he did not shrink. He was phenomenal. He was 23 for 32 passing at 220 yards, two touchdowns, no interceptions. And, uh, you know, this is exactly the Minnesota Vikings team I expected when Kirk Cousins came to Minnesota. Sunday night was the very first time I've really seen what I expected all along, which was a Vikings team that played great defense. They ran the ball really well. And they had a quarterback who was good enough and made plays when the team needed. Case Keenum wasn't good enough. Sam Bradford wasn't good enough. I, I was waiting for a long time. It's felt like, man, there's a team here in Minnesota, a good running game, a good defense, and the quarterback is holding them back. On Sunday night, the quarterback did not. I want to give credit to Kirk. I want to revisit that idea, though. Why did Kirk Cousins seem to play better? We'll talk about that at the end of this topic. But when you're watching the Minnesota Vikings, you hear all these names. You've heard them for a long time. Stephon Diggs, Dalvin Cook, Kyle Rudolph, the tight end at two touchdowns. There's these common names in Minnesota, these, these you know, star players that have been around for a while. But the names you don't hear, there are six names you probably don't know in Minnesota. They've had a, they've had a huge impact on the Vikings season, and they're the reason why they're 7-3. and three. They're the big difference this year for Minnesota. The six names are number 56, Garrett Bradbury, number 65, Pat Elfline, number 75, Brian O'Neill, number 71, Riley Reef, number 64, Josh Klein, and number 78, Dakota Dozier. Those six names are the names of their offensive linemen. The Vikings' offense looks better. And again, we talk about all the star players. Kirk Cousins, the quarterback. Dalvin Cook, the running back. Stephon Diggs is great. Kyle Rudolph, Adam Thielen, and he's healthy. He's an incredible receiver. But the big difference this year for the Minnesota Vikings is the offensive line. I watched the film last year. I did a whole breakdown of Kirk Cousins. The offensive line was a mess. And I know some of it was coaching. I thought, but regardless... The big change this year is the offensive line. The big difference. Garrett Bradbury is a, a center they drafted last year. He's been a great addition to the team. And because they drafted Garrett Bradbury, they were able to move last year's center, Pat Elfline, over to guard. Pat Elfline was not a good center. He got beat often, was just not suited for that position. At the guard spot, Pat Elfline's done phenomenal. And that move from center to guard has been really good for his career. I, I think actually it's possible. I haven't done their homework. I think my guess is Pat Elfline traditionally played guard all through college or something because he looks like a guy who's suited to play guard and he looked just out of like a fish out of water at the center position Pat Elfine wasn't made for that they added Dakota Dozier a guard a guard from the Jets he's contributed a couple times this year because Josh Klein the regular starting guard from the Titans last year has been he's been kind of spotty with some injuries last year he played you know Josh Klein played 16 games for the Titans came over to Minnesota he's done a great job when he's healthy they shipped Mike Remmers, a tackle off to the New York Giants. Mike Remmers was a guy. He drove me nuts to watch. I hated watching Mike Remmers because he got beat so frequently. I said, we're done with him. They sent him to the New York Giants. He's been kind of a mess there, too. And second-year tackle Brian O'Neill, a guy they drafted last year, has really stepped up this year and done a great job playing tackle at the right tackle spot. And the left tackle, Riley Reef has been fully healthy. The Vikings offensive line. I know there's the names. I know there's Kirk Cousins, Stephon Diggs. There's all these names everyone wants to talk about in Minnesota. And Kirk deserves credit. Kirk is playing well. But it's the offensive line that's allowing for the star players in Minnesota to continue to succeed. The reason why the Vikings are winning and why it looks like the Vikings offensive line has turned a corner is that offensive line. 
I don't care how much, how much talent you have out wide. We played a team once in high school who had six Division I players and a terrible offensive line. And you know what we did? We beat them 54-7 to because no matter how much Division I talent you have, no matter how talented you are outside, if your offensive line is a problem, you're not going to succeed. That's the difference this year for Minnesota. Now, Kirk Cousins deserves some credit. I think we saw the beginning of the evolution for Kirk Cousins. It was a primetime game on Sunday. It was a big moment. The Vikings, the Cowboys in Dallas, in oh, well, I guess in Arlington, Texas at Dallas Cowboys Stadium. And I guess AT&T Stadium is what it's called. But the point is Kirk was great. And I'm so happy for him because in a big moment, he showed up. He delivered. And I think it's interesting, before the game, leading up to the game, there were a couple posts on social media by Kirk that were very telling. You know, on Saturday, he posted a picture of him in a suit saying, Dallas bound, you know, acknowledging, hey, we're going to Dallas, we've got a big game. And on Sunday morning before that game, he posted Sunday night football with an exclamation point and a picture. And to me, that's Kirk Cousins on social media saying, hey, I understand the narrative about me. I understand the big situation I'm walking into. And he owned it and acknowledged the moment. I thought that was so cool. And what I saw on Sunday was a calmer Kirk Cousins, a more composed Kirk, a a, a Kirk that I think is potentially turning a corner and has some progress. I've wondered for a long time about the Vikings quarterback is whether or not he has a problem with performance anxiety, where in a big moment he gets stressed and it doesn't work for him. It seems like Kirk, you know, after Sunday night, it's possible he's tackling that issue based on what we've seen from social media, what we've seen on the field is he's acknowledging the moments, he's owning them, and he's turning a corner in that. Whatever that struggle has been behind the scenes with issues and big moments, it seems like he's making progress. Now, we'll really find out. He plays two Monday night football games the rest of this year. On weeks, in week 16, the Vikings go to Seattle to play against the Minnesota Vikings. Look, I don't need Kirk Cousins to have seven touchdowns. What I, what I want to see from Kirk in that game is don't make the big critical mistake in the fourth quarter. And then, so that's, that's one opportunity where we're going to see, is there really progress being made by Kirk Cousins in primetime games? And then week 16, Monday Night Football, the Vikings host the Packers. Another Monday Night Football game, millions of viewers, it's the only game on at the time. That's what primetime is. How does Kirk Cousins play in that big moment with all the eyeballs on him? Does he shrink? Does he make a horrible mistake at the end of the game that costs his team a victory? Or does Kirk make plays on third and seven? Does he make plays when his team needs him? Week 13 and week 16 will be very telling for Kirk Cousins. I'm excited to see that moving forward, but I think it's possible that Sunday night between the Vikings and the Cowboys was the beginning of of a cornerstone in the beginning of a transition where Kirk is beginning to evolve and handling big moments and pressure far better than he ever has before. So there are those two big games coming up. And then I think the Vikings are a playoff team. How will Kirk handle those big moments in the playoffs? I think we saw the beginning of an evolution. That's a storyline I want to track throughout the rest of this year. So let's, let's shift gears from one Minnesota team, the professional Minnesota team, to the college Minnesota team. Uh, I feel happy for Minnesota sports fans. Last weekend was probably the best weekend for Minnesota sports in a long, long time. Uh, on Saturday, the University of Minnesota beat Penn State 31-26. to And, God, it was a great game. 
Uh, both teams were undefeated. Well, actually, now, you know, Penn State is now 8-1. and one, And the University of Minnesota Golden Gophers are 9-0. and oh. And it's a cool story because according to the college football playoff ranking going into that game, Minnesota was number 17 overall and Penn State was number four. And man, I'm just, I'm happy for Minnesota fans. This is a big upset for them on paper. I think they were all expecting to win, but I used to live in Maple Grove, Minnesota. And, you know, Minnesota, I I don't have a favorite team. Uh, It was easy to not be a fan of the Minnesota Golden Gophers because they stunk. They were terrible. They were awful. And I want to credit the crowd in Minnesota. It's been a long time, like years, that the fans of this football team have wanted to be good, and they haven't been. They brought in this new coach, P.J. Fleck. He's been a cornerstone and really the reason why they're turning things around. But the crowd in Minnesota on Saturday, Minnesota hosting Penn State, they showed up. They were loud, and the team fed off their energy. The people in that stadium just were sh- they showed up all game, loud, cheering. They showed up for their team and allowed their team to show up for them in big moments. It was so cool, and I, I just really enjoyed the chaotic, fun football game we saw between Penn State and Minnesota. Now, Minnesota's quarterback, Tanner Morgan, oh my gosh. Um, he was accurate. He made wonderful decisions. He was, not, he was not safe at all. Tanner Morgan threw the ball downfield. Big completion after big completion. 40 yards, 30 yards. I was like, what? This guy, Tanner Morgan, is shredding Penn State. And it's really cool. He completed 18 of his 20 passes. So he had two incomplete passes the entire game. He had 339 yards, three touchdowns, no interceptions. And what's crazy about this game is he had three touchdowns and only two incomplete passes. He had more touchdown passes than he had incompletions. That's unbelievable. To me, I've never heard. I'm not a big stats guy. You know me. And the fact that he did that in the biggest game of the year for his football team is just so cool. And I'm really curious. I don't know if he's an NFL quarterback or not, but Tanner Morgan jumped onto my radar yesterday on Saturday. And I was like, wow, that, this is just, uh, it's phenomenal. I just was so impressed with him. Minnesota was a better team though, just all around. They were more physical and they were better coached on Saturday. You know, there's a goal line stand where Penn State started with the ball in the nine yard line. They ran the ball three times in a row. They made very little progress. Then with a fourth and goal on the four-yard line, Penn State went for it. They threw the ball. Minnesota knocked it away in the end zone. Penn State was stopped on four consecutive fourth and, you know, first first and goal, second and goal, third and goal, and fourth and goal. Four consecutive downs. Minnesota held their ground and got a turnover on downs. Now, it's really funny. In contrast, Penn State couldn't score on the goal line. Minnesota was perfect and goal-to-go situations. Again, uh, let's talk about another stat that excites me. Um, Minnesota's 19 for 19. They have 19 touchdowns in all 19 goal-to-go situations they've had this year. Every time Minnesota's had a first and goal this year, they found a way to turn it into a touchdown. (laughs) That's unbelievable. The the end of the, the drive is always, if they have a first and goal, so far this year, through nine games, Minnesota, every single time, has converted and finished that drive with a touchdown. That's unbelievable. And Minnesota also put Penn State in a really, I think, a foreign and uncomfortable situation they hadn't dealt with at all this year. The first eight games of the year, Penn State led 84% of the time. Minnesota took the lead early 
and didn't look back. Minnesota led most of the game against Penn State, and I think that put some pressure on Penn State and really caused them to struggle, and I, I think it really helped when Minnesota outcoached Penn State. Well, there's two scenarios I want to discuss for Minnesota. I want to contrast you know, Minnesota's coaching uh, with P.J. Fleck and Penn State's coaching. Uh, Penn State, excuse me, Minnesota, and P.J. Fleck, the head coach of Minnesota, had a situation where his situational game management really, really impressed me. His understanding of the situation and how to handle it was phenomenal. It was fourth and 16, and Minnesota took an intentional delay of game penalty to give them more room for their punter. They, they backed up another five yards to help their punter get more room. The, they punted the ball away and ended up pinning Penn State on their own nine-yard line. They flipped the field. They made it very difficult for Penn State, and that's a, lar- a large degree because of the situational game management by P.J. Flex saying, hey, we want to pin them deep. Let's take a five-yard penalty and move us back a little bit to give our punter more room. I was really impressed with that. Now, Penn State made decisions that cost them. Penn State left four points on the board. I understand that Penn State lost by five. But in my opinion, those four points could have been five. And I think we could have had a 31-31 tie game if Penn State had handled things a little bit differently. There was a point in the game where Penn State scored a touchdown and made the game 19-24. to And they chose to go for a two-point conversion to try to make it a three-point game, and they failed. So the score was left at 19-24. to If they'd gone for the, the extra point and just taken the one point, it could have been a 24-20 to game. That one point would come back to haunt them later. Later, it was 31-19, and it was fourth and goal for Penn State. And if Penn State had had one more point, they could have kicked a field goal and made it a one-possession game. If it's, you know, if it was 20 to 31, they could have kicked a, a field goal and made it 23 to 31 and an eight-point difference, making it saying you know, for Penn State, all they would have needed is a touchdown and a two-point conversion, and they could have tied up the game. Instead, because they chose to go for two earlier in the game. They had to go for it now because there was no chance of making it a one-score game with just a field goal. They needed a touchdown on fourth and goal. They got stopped, and it cost them. They failed on fourth and goal. It could have been. So it, there was a situation where two times Penn State, they, they cost themselves by going for it earlier in the game in the middle of the third quarter. They went for two, a two-point conversion, and that later came back to haunt them by forcing them to go for it on fourth and goal rather than being able to take the easy points with a chip-shot field goal and making it a one-possession game. Penn State mismanaged those situations, trying to chase points earlier than they needed to, and cost them a chance to tie up the game. Because they did go down and score a touchdown later, which would have been... The, the, my point is they scored a touchdown, and they had an opportunity for a field goal, and they had an opportunity for an extra point. All of the drives were there, but they didn't take points when they needed to, and it cost them not four, but five points, and possibly a tie game with Minnesota. I'm so happy for Minnesota fans, man. I, I, um, I just want to discuss their head coach, P.J. Fleck. P.J. Fleck was hired in 2017, and he was brought over from Western Michigan. And it's really interesting. You know, P.J. Fleck, after his first year in Minnesota, a lot of guys transferred out of the program. They said, we don't want to be a part of this and left. And P.J. Fleck's attitude is, okay, I am who I am. I know I'm not for everybody. And if you don't want to be a part of this, no problem. I'll find guys who want to be a part of our program and want to work. And uh, some people think he's a crazy man. Like some people in Minnesota even are like, 
PJ, well, I guess Minnesota's probably less likely, but people in the Big Ten that I know are like, PJ Flex insane. The fact that he's, they think he's a crazy man because he talks about work and he's got all these, these sayings and all these phrases and yada, yada. And he's, I think, very demanding. He expects a high level of effort from his team. But I love that he doesn't apologize for who he is, and he's succeeding. P.J. Fleck is 9-0, and turning around an impossible situation at Minnesota. It's phenomenal. And the coolest story I can think of to explain P.J. Fleck and really kind of celebrate who he is as a person is um, he used to be the head coach at Western Michigan. And when he was hired at Western Michigan— he called up a guy named Kirk Shiraka. Kirk Shiraka is now the offensive coordinator at Minnesota. At the time, they'd knew, known each other from a past job at Rutgers. And, you know, he, he called up Kirk Shiraka and said, hey, I want you to be my offensive coordinator at Western Michigan. And at the time, Kirk Shiraka, it's spelled with a C, but you call it Shiraka. It's very weird. Whatever. I, I just, I'm saying his name, though. He pronounced it. I found a video on YouTube where he said his own name. I made sure. I'm doing the best I can to pronounce it right. But Kirk Shiraka said at the time had he had an offer from Western Michigan and then two other coaching job offers that both paid more money than P.J. Fleck at Western Michigan was able to offer. And Kirk Shiraka went home to his wife and they had a discussion about it. And Kirk Shiraka's wife said, honey, you have always said that P.J. Fleck would be a great head coach. And so Kirk Shiraka took less money to work with P.J. Fleck at Western Michigan. And it just speaks to me how P.J. Fleck is such an infectious leader of men and a great leader of men that Kirk Shiraka was willing to take less money to work with him. That's how good of a leader and how good of a person he is. People matter. And to me, P.J. Fleck is an elite leader of men and an incredible influence on that program. And this example, the win over Penn State, is a prime example of the way that P.J. Fleck is turning things around at the University of Minnesota. It makes me so happy. And I just, I really enjoyed watching that game. And that whole celebration of Minnesota last weekend was phenomenal. Uh, you know, I think the best case scenario, we have to go down this rabbit hole. You know, and, and people think, you know, I'm gushing about Minnesota. I think people understand I'm not a fan of Minnesota. I think the best case scenario for Minnesota is for them to lose the Big Ten championship to Ohio State. They'll lose the Big Ten championship. And then that would give them an opportunity to play in the Rose Bowl against either Oregon or Utah. That'd be a huge moment for them. And I really, I really hope we see Minnesota versus Utah or Minnesota versus Oregon in the Rose Bowl. I think you know Utah would be a really, really fun matchup because you got this great defense at Utah. They run the ball well against Minnesota, who plays great sound. I mean, really, Utah and Minnesota are both such similar teams where they play sound football. They're well coached. They're very disciplined. They run the ball well. And they have two interesting quarterbacks. Uh, I think Oregon would be a little more of a runaway. You know, I think Oregon has a better chance to beat Minnesota. But either way, either matchup, it would be so much fun to watch Minnesota on a grand stage against Utah or Oregon. That's what I hope for their program. That's what I hope to see. And I think that's really the best-case scenario for the University of Minnesota finishing this season. So, guys, I just uh, it was so much fun. I, I just had a blast watching Minnesota sports between the Vikings and uh, the University of Minnesota. I wanted to lead the show with them because I was like, man, Minnesota just had a win last weekend. They had a great weekend. They went, you know, they won their professional team, their college football team won, and it was a blast to me. I want to shift gears now. Um, the NFL Week 10 was really, really wild. There were a couple games where teams that weren't expected to win did, in fact, win. Uh, the Dolphins beat the Colts. 
And I, I know the Colts had a backup quarterback playing, but I really thought that they could overcome that and still beat the Dolphins. The Dolphins showed up. The Dolphins had a great game. The Titans beat the Chiefs. Everybody was surprised by that. Uh, the Browns, who were 2-6, and six, beat the Bills, who were 6-2. and two. And most notable was that the 1-7 and seven Atlanta Falcons beat, they went to their own dome. They went to New Orleans and beat the 7-1 and one New Orleans Saints. Again, I can't repeat this enough. The Falcons went into New Orleans and beat the Saints 26-9. to nine. That is a beatdown. That doesn't happen at their own place in New Orleans. It was crazy to me. And to me, this is why I love the NFL so much. Anybody can beat anybody. You have to show up with your best game or you're going to lose. Even at the, you know, at the pro level, everybody's talented, even the teams that have bad records. Teams, you know, the 1-7 in seven Falcons still have a ton of talent. They have the best of the best from the college level. And, you know, man, what I saw on Sunday was a New Orleans Saints team that did not take care of business and got beat. I think, for example, you know, the, the Colts had – this is an example of why you have to take care of business. The Colts had their starting quarterback, Jacoby Brissett, out with an injury. And a lot of people were like, okay, well, they're playing the Dolphins. It's a good move by the Colts because you should rest Jacoby Brissett. He's been injured. Let's just make sure he's fully healthy. And he had a backup Brian Hoyer against the Dolphins. Brian Hoyer's played a lot of games, and the Dolphins are terrible. That should be an easy win still for the Colts. And no, Brian Hoyer, the backup quarterback for the Colts, had three interceptions. The, the, the Dolphins took advantage. They won. If you don't take care of business in the NFL, you will lose. So I want to focus on this Falcons game, the Falcons and Saints game. It was the most surprising upset of the weekend. What happened? What happened was the Saints defense really, really struggled. Uh, the Saints defense is a really, really good defense against the run. I've been very impressed with the way they run downhill. They fill gaps. They're phenomenal at, you know, at breaking down and making tackles at the, around the line of scrimmage. And I mean, look, for example, the Colts shut down the Dallas Cowboys running back Ezekiel Elliott earlier this year. And uh, they won like 12 to 10. They beat the Dallas Cowboys. It was a huge victory for the Saints. Well, the Falcons ran right through the Saints' defense like it was nothing. They had big chunks. They ran for 10 yards, 12-yard gains, 8-yard gains, big run after big run after big run. Uh, and then they used play action and threw the ball vertically downfield. And the Saints linebackers, in my opinion, just had a really bad day. They were not great at tackling. They didn't fly downhill. It was like their energy was low. Something was off for the Saints, and they didn't fly downhill at all, and it cost them. This, the Falcons' ability to run the ball created an opportunity for them to have really long drives. They had a 17-play touchdown drive. That's demoralizing for a team to play against. The Falcons were also 4-for-4 four four kicking field goals. They had this new kicker, uh, Young Hoku, who's a guy from—he he struggled with the Chargers and was once released, and he's doing, he did a great job on Sunday for the Falcons. But the best thing I saw all weekend, the thing that got me excited for the Falcons was their defense— showed up their defense was fantastic you got to understand that in Atlanta Atlanta's led by a defensive-minded head coach Dan Quinn the Falcons are one in seven and their defense has played awful all year finally 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 the Falcons defense showed up on Sunday against the New Orleans Saints and man it just had to feel good you know so many people have been calling for you know Dan Quinn's job they want him fired I've even said, look, I think the problem's got to be the culture because Dan Quinn, I, I really believe Dan Quinn understands defense. And it made me so happy and excited to watch the Falcons and the Saints and see Dan Quinn with his football team celebrating, high-fiving guys, with, you know, just excited with his team and his defense who was playing so well. And 
in multiple situations, the Falcons stopped the Saints on third and goal. The Falcons, or the, the Saints, excuse me, could not score in the red zone. They had to settle for field goals. And, uh, man, the Falcons didn't allow a touchdown against that incredible Saints defense. To me, uh, Saints offense, excuse me. To me, the Falcons had a huge victory. And it was so much fun to watch. And the lesson here is the Saints slipped up, man. They had really poor run defense. They had poor pass protection. And the Falcons made them pay. It was a great win for the Falcons. Their defense looked the best it has all year. And I was so, so happy for Atlanta. It was just awesome and a great victory. And that is why that surprising, you know, I think upsets in the NFL should not be as surprising as people realize. College, the culture in college is you got to compare every win because there's a ranking system. There's no ranking system in the NFL. And aside from that, talent is far more equal. There's no Alabama versus New Mexico State in the NFL. There's no just gigantic wide mismatches. There are still mismatches for sure. Some NFL teams are more talented than others. But as a whole, the, the talent level and the product of ability in the NFL is so higher that you should never be shocked when a team beats another NFL team. You should be surprised. I mean, for sure, I was surprised that the Falcons totally manhandled the Saints. No wrong with surprise there. But the lesson here is that any NFL team can beat any NFL team. There's enough talent everywhere. And these are professionals that this is their job to learn how to win football games. Even like the Browns upsetting the Bills. I understand like what the, the Bills did well against the, the, excuse me, the Browns did well against the Bills. There's still a professional football team with a lot of talent everywhere. Upsets in the NFL are not shocking to me the way they are in college because when you have, again, if uh, South Carolina beat Georgia, South Carolina is not as talented as Georgia, and Georgia has a good quarterback and a really good head coach, it's shocking when Georgia loses to South Carolina. When New, when New Orleans loses to Atlanta, it can be surprising, but it's still two professional NFL teams. And I, my point is that upsets in the NFL are not as, they're not like, oh my God, they're not as impressive as they should, as they are in college, because that's how the NFL works. Everybody's talented, and anybody can beat anybody. All right, I'm going to take a short break. When I return, uh, we're going to talk about LSU versus Alabama, an incredible, probably the best you know, college football game of the year last weekend. We'll talk about the college football playoff. I'm going to give you my top five and who I think should be there. We're going to discuss Lamar Jackson, and then we will end the show with Ask Zach. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. I will be right back. And uh, I, I guess, you know, I, I kind of went up there. I'm going to be right back. Okay, bye. All right, we are back. Uh, man, I I love my job. It feels so good to record. I haven't recorded all weekend before today. And uh, man, it just it just feels good. I, uh, I apologize for the long break. It was not intended. Again, I've been dealing with something behind the scenes. I just, uh, I'm here and I have a lot to say. Uh, I, I've got some stuff planned for tomorrow. And um, I, uh, I just, man, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I want to briefly talk about something. I went on a trip to uh, California last weekend and uh it uh i learned a lot the whole trip to me was a learning experience i visited the pac-12 network and i got to meet some people there and they were incredibly kind and uh you know it made me realize how much i don't want to ever work in the corporate world i just don't i really like having the bedroom and you know making a a show here and uh, i broadcasted cal versus washington state and uh Man, that was an exercise in learning as well. I learned a lot about broadcasting. You know, the whole trip to me, I learned about logistics. I learned about traveling. I learned about myself. Um, it was a fun trip. It was a ton of work. And uh, I, I just, I think, I got to repeat, I learned a lot. Um, it's weird how, and interesting to me, how the more things I do and the more experiences I have, the more I realize how 
how much I have left to learn. Um, and the whole, the whole trip to me was like just a, a learning experience. It was very difficult. And uh, either way, I'm glad to be back and glad to be here. Um, last weekend, we had the biggest college football game of the entire year, LSU at Alabama. LSU won. LSU beat Alabama 46-41. to 41. And it was this dramatic, exciting, fun football game. I had a blast watching it. And we had to see the two best quarterbacks in college football, Joe Burrow, LSU's quarterback, and Tua Tungvaloa, Alabama's quarterback, Joe and Tua, go head-to-head. And, oh, my gosh, it was awesome. Joe Burrow stole the show. Joe Burrow was the star of the game. He played better than Tua. And, you know, because of this game, he is now – he was already the Heisman favorite. Now he's the Heisman favorite by a mile. I would be shocked at this point if Joe Burrow isn't the person to win the Heisman Trophy. And how interesting would it be if – Three years in a row, Baker Mayfield, then Kyler Murray, and then Joe Burrow, back-to-back-to-back, were all Heisman Trophy winners, quarterbacks, and number one overall picks. I think it's possible that happens, and man, I just was so impressed with Joe Burrow. He made great decisions. He ran the ball when he needed to. He made really big throws downfield, very daring throws, didn't hesitate, did a great job, and you know, when I watch Joe Burrow, I actually see a lot of Jimmy Garoppolo. They're, they're very similar quarterbacks, Jimmy Garoppolo and Joe Burrow. They don't have the biggest arm, but they're very accurate. They have great timing, and they both can run a little bit. And even watching Joe Burrow run is very similar to the way Jimmy Garoppolo runs. I'm like, oh, it's, there's such a weird similarity there. In this game against Alabama, Joe Burrow was 31 for 39 passing. He had 339 yards. He had three touchdowns. And what impressed me the most was that in this big moment, it's everybody's watching, the nation's watching, the world is watching, and it's you matched up with Alabama, this juggernaut. And you're not the favorite in this game. And Joe Burrow showed up and played his best football. I mean, he put everything out there. He was phenomenal. And he didn't even look intimidated in the slide. And I know that's like, you shouldn't be so excited someone didn't look intimidated. But to me, it's so impressive that who Joe Burrow is showed up. He was not a, he was not deterred. He was not discouraged. He just, man, puffed out his chest and played his best football. And to me, that's impressive. And that's, that's to me, really exciting if you're a quarterback evaluator to see a guy who, in his biggest moment, shows up. A lot of quarterbacks are really good. Some guys struggle in the biggest moment. Joe Burrow did not. He was phenomenal. Um, a stressful situation. He was totally, totally cool. Now, LSU's offensive staff made a bunch of great play calls. They were phenomenal. Um, LSU has a bunch of playmakers. And Joe Burrow executed that offense perfectly. He has mastered this offense. Joe Burrow, it's very clear to me that the preparation Joe Burrow has done is, is just an, an elite level. I mean, whether it's the offseason or leading up to a week, he is in total command. He knows exactly what to, where to go with the ball. Every single play, Joe Burrow has great understanding of the matchups. And he knew when his receivers were matched up on a, a backup corner. He knew where to go with the ball at all times and just did a great job. And uh, I, to me, you know, and, and not only that, Joe Burrow worked all the way across the field to his third and his fourth read. To me, Joe Burrow's performance against Alabama is a selling point. Like, this is an NFL performance. The way the guy read defenses, the way the guy understood matchups, the way the guy was calm under pressure in big moments. Uh, Joe Burrow put out an NFL performance last weekend against Alabama. And it really actually reminds me of when I watched the film of Kyler Murray 
versus Alabama last year. I was like, okay, well, you know, Kyler Murray is the number one overall pick. Watch how he handles Alabama. I was so impressed. And Joe Burrow did the same exact thing. He handled them incredibly well and played his best football. And so, to me, Joe Burrow is the best quarterback in the NFL draft. And if it's not, it's Tua. But I, I really just, the way he handled that moment was better than Tua. And I was so impressed with him. Alabama didn't deserve to beat LSU. They did not deserve to win that football game. They had busted coverages. They left LSU receivers wide open. There was a play where they had two guys left wide open. And Alabama's quarterback, Tua, had two really costly turnovers. And I understand that I know Tua was hurt. A lot of people are like, well, Zach, Zach, you know, Tua Tungvaloa was injured. I get it. He was injured. But his ankle injury didn't make him drop the ball. And his ankle injury didn't make him have a bad interception where he made just a bad decision and threw a terrible, threw an ill-advised pass before halftime. I mean, the fumble, he literally just dropped the ball. That's not, you can't blame that on the ankle. And LSU took advantage of those mistakes. And to me, you know, I really, really respect Tua for playing this game. I, I, I was, you know, his ankle, I'm sure, was hurting. He was 20 days removed from an ankle injury. And I, I really want to, I want to be very, very clear Joe Burrow, in my opinion, outplayed Tua, but Tua is still an incredible quarterback and deserves a lot of respect. And I think really, uh, he's, he's still, a, look, if it's not Joe Burrow, it's Tua. They're the two best quarterbacks in college football, and they're the two best quarterbacks going into the NFL draft. I'm really impressed with Tua. Um, I think NFL scouts will be too. You know, the fact that he played 20 days removed from an ankle surgery is just awesome. I want to read you a quote. It's a quote from the LSU safety. Jacoby Stevens, after the game, he said, Tua is a team player, man. He had every reason to be selfish. He has every excuse in the world to not play in this game and just prepare for the draft. But one thing Tua is going to do is Tua is going to come out and put on a show for his fans and he's going to play his hardest for his team. That's one thing, dot, 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 I respect the hell out of Tua for doing that. I, I agree completely with Jacoby Stevens, and I think NFL circles are really impressed with Tua because, again, he could have very easily said, I'm the best quarterback in the NFL draft. My ankle's shot. I'm taking a break. He came out to play and help his team. And, man, we've seen guys get hurt and shut down their season to prepare for the NFL, not Tua. Tua is here for the long haul. He's a team player. He's a quarterback who loves his team and puts his team first. And to me, man, I, I am so impressed with Tua. I know a lot of people are going to point to the fumble and the interception and say, well, Tua got outplayed by Joe Burrow. He did. He did get outplayed. But the fact that he showed up to play deserves some recognition. And the body of work Tua has done and the decisions he's made and the way he's played, you know, his deep ball is incredible. You know, I have said that I've made statements before that Jacob Eason, the quarterback at Washington, has the best arm. And Jacob Eason might have the best arm. He's got the strongest arm, the most zip on the ball. Tua Tungvaloa's deep ball is bar none. I mean, he had, he had a deep ball at the end of the game where, like, it just down the left side, and I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> that's a perfect throw. I mean, multiple times, Tua, throughout his career, has just gone, just launched the ball 60 yards, perfectly in stride, over the shoulder to a receiver, and I've gone, that's just a, I don't know what to do with that. That's an NFL throw. So, uh, Tua, I still hold very highly in regards to the NFL, and I, I don't think this performance should take away from his draft stock or make him look bad. I think, in fact, actually it helps him, because now NFL teams know if Tua's hurt, He's going to show up for your team and try to help them. And I think that's really, really impressive with me or to me. Now, the question is, what is next for Alabama? What now? Here's the reality. Bama played poorly. They had busted coverages. They had a quarterback make two really bad decisions. 
Alabama played badly, and they still lost by only five points to the number one team in the nation. Um, you know, in my opinion, Alabama is still alive, very much alive in the college football playoff discussion and deserves to be. Uh, it's just my opinion, but I think Alabama, uh, they, they deserve to be in that conversation, and I would not be shocked if they still made it into the college football playoff, even with the loss to LSU last Saturday. Here's a fun exercise. Um, today is Thursday, November 14th. And in my opinion, in my opinion, these are the five best teams in college football. One through five. And then we'll talk about a couple additional teams. The three best teams, you can put them in any order you want. But the three best teams that are just a head and shoulder better than everybody else in college football are Ohio State, LSU, and Alabama. You know, Ohio State's incredibly deep. Uh, they are phenomenal on offense or phenomenal on defense. They have talent everywhere. You know, Ohio State just murdered Maryland 73-14 to 14 the other day. And they didn't even have their best player, Chase Bryce, who's probably the best player in all of college football. They're a dominating team that's just incredibly good. Um, then you look at LSU and Alabama, and you know LSU beat Alabama by five points. But let's be very honest. Don't be silly here. If LSU plays Alabama f- 10 times, they both win probably five of those times. They're very well matched. And if you're going to put LSU, if you're going to say LSU is the best team in the nation, you can't fail to mention that Alabama's right there. I mean, they're, they're neck and neck, very similar teams. If Alabama has a little better game or a couple things go a little bit differently, Alabama beats LSU. So in my opinion, the three best teams in all of college football are Ohio State, LSU, and Alabama. And it, it's really them three and then everybody else. Now, my fourth-ranked team, in my opinion— the fourth best team in college football is Clemson. Um, my number five is Oregon. The reason why Clemson and Oregon are at four and five, and the reason why Clemson is four ahead of Oregon, is both Clemson and Oregon slipped up. You know, Clemson almost lost to North Carolina. Now, Oregon did lose to Auburn. They did lose. And not, to, not only that, you know, not only is Clemson undefeated, Oregon has one loss. Oregon also almost lost to University of Washington, Washington State, excuse me, and Mike Leach's you know, incredible offense. So um, I really think that – I think Oregon is phenomenal. They're changing things. Mario Cristobal, their head coach, values offensive linemen. They are pushing teams around in the Pac-12. You know, Oregon pushed around USC, and it wasn't really close. Uh, but Oregon, to me, is the, the fifth-best team in the nation and the best team in the Pac-12, and their one loss to Auburn I don't think should be held against them. Uh, you know, right now, Auburn looks really, really good. Auburn lost to LSU by three points, and they beat Oregon, who are, you know, Oregon and LSU are, you know, in my top five ranked teams. But I don't want to punish Oregon too much for losing to Auburn. You know, Oregon took a chance. They took a risk that I think other teams are unwilling to take. Week one of the college football season, Oregon went to a neutral site, which is far closer to Alabama, Dallas, Texas. They played away oh, Arlington, Texas. They played an AT&T Stadium where the Dallas Cowboys play. And Oregon played against Auburn. They lost a really close game. And to me, that's just, you, you know, you can punish them if you want. I, I don't see any other teams in the top five. LSU, Georgia, Alabama, Clemson. Nobody's taking a risk that Oregon took to play a top-ranked team at a neutral site this year. And so I think that deserves respect. That's why Oregon's in my top five. Uh, Utah's really close to Oregon. Oregon and Utah are both 8-1 and one in the Pac-12. Um, but Utah has a better defense, in my opinion. I understand that. But to me, what, com- what it comes down to is Oregon's quarterback 
Justin Herbert is a difference, and that's why I'm putting Oregon ahead of Utah because I think Oregon can go a lot farther. They have a better they have better offensive linemen and a better quarterback that I think can carry them a little bit farther than Utah's quarterback can carry them. I know Utah has this great defense, and here's my evidence for why I think Utah has a better defense than Oregon. I know that Utah lost to USC, and USC got trounced by Oregon. But the reason why Utah lost to USC is because Utah had a couple of key injuries on defense and gave up some cheap deep balls into double coverage that really should not have been touchdowns. Um, here's the, the best example of why Utah, in my opinion, is better than Oregon. When Utah was healthy, they shut down Washington State's offense. Washington State and Mike Leach really struggled to throw the ball against Utah because Utah played really physical football with their secondary and dominated. And I, I heard guys from Washington State sideline whining and whimpering. I was at the game broadcasting. They're whining and whimpering about, what do we do? What do we do in the right honest when we're catching the ball? It's like, be physical. And they had no answer. Now, a couple weeks later, Oregon could not stop Washington State. You know, the, Oregon gave up 35 points and almost lost to Mike Leach and Washington State. So uh, that, that game to me is really the litmus test. How do you handle that? I, I, I was not impressed with the way Oregon did, you know, handle that game at all. So I, I think Oregon is better than Utah because of their quarterback and their offensive line. But Utah does have a better defense than Oregon. I want to give them credit for that. People in Utah, I hope you appreciate that. Uh, Minnesota and Baylor are both undefeated. Now, Minnesota's wins to me are more impressive than Baylor. You know, Baylor barely beat TCU the other day. Um, but both teams, you know, Minnesota and Baylor are both very good teams that I think are, should get very good bowl games. I hope they do. Uh, I, I hope Minnesota goes to the Rose Bowl, honestly. But Minnesota and Pens- Minnesota is a good team. They're not a college football playoff team. Baylor's a good team. They do not belong in the college football playoff, in my opinion. They're not one of the best teams in college football. They've been very fortunate with a good schedule. They won a lot of close games. But to me, I'm not that impressed. You know, like Minnesota beat Penn State the other day. And I think you know, as, as cool as that win was, to me, it's really a situation where Penn State was more overrated and I don't think Minnesota's underrated. It's Penn State, the team they beat, was just overrated, and people thought too highly of them. Now, Georgia. Uh, the last team I want to mention is University of Georgia. They're 8-1. and one. They deserve a mention because they have, man, they have top-notch talent. They're just so, so, like, from when you watch the tape, oh, my gosh, they're pushing people around. They have incredible receivers. Georgia is incredibly, incredibly deep and I think has one of the best, most talented teams in college football even though they lost, right? You know, um, I think they belong in the conversation with Oregon, Clemson, Utah, excuse me, Oregon, Clemson. I don't mean to throw Utah in there at all. They're not, you know, Georgia's far more. Georgia would annihilate Utah, by the way. Um, But I think Oregon's up there. I think Clemson, I think Alabama, LSU, Ohio State. Georgia belongs in that conversation with those teams. Um, The problem is, and LSU has just, excuse me, Georgia has this great defense. The problem is Georgia's offensive coaching is holding them back. They're just limited on offense and they don't have creative play design. And, you know, Georgia makes LSU look really good or maybe LSU makes Georgia look really bad. But when you compare them, LSU last year realized that their weakness was their, was their offense. They were like, okay, we have a problem. We need help on offense. And so LSU hired a guy named Joe Brady from the Saints to become their passing game coordinator and innovate on offense. Georgia needs to make a similar move to that. Georgia needs to find something and make a similar move. Um, you know, Jake Fromm is a really good quarterback at Georgia. He needs help. 
And they need somebody in Georgia to design a new offense and have more creative play calling to take advantage of the top-level talent that Georgia has. It's so, uh, you know, I think frustrating and hard to watch Georgia because it's, it's all – the pieces are all there, and they don't have the coaching to execute on offense. So um, I wanted to mention 8-1 Georgia. They're close to that conversation. They're not in my top five, but they're, like, right below it. They just need a new coach. If they got a new coach on offense – uh, I think they could do something really, really special. So, guys, my top five, my, 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 how would I put this? I think the five best teams in college football are Ohio State, LSU, Alabama, Clemson, and Oregon. And then Georgia's right there, but Georgia's limited on offense. They're like five and a half, Georgia is, because I think their offense is holding them back. Oh, guys, I want to shift to the NFL again real quick. Um, Lamar Jackson just had this incredible game against the Bengals the other day. Uh, he had four touchdowns, three passing, one rushing. He had a couple great throws. I really love, love the way the Ravens use their tight ends. Um, and, you know, I watched Lamar Jackson. He's working all the way across the field. He's throwing to his third and fourth option. Um, and then he had this incredible wild touchdown run where he, like, had a crazy spin move and ran into the end zone. I, I really hope people understand right now Lamar Jackson is the best quarterback from the 2018 NFL draft class. It's, it's really not close. Um, I want to name five names. And when I name the five names, I want you to ask yourself, who would you least want to play? Of the five people I'm going to name next, who is a person you would say, I don't want to play against that person? Sam Darnold, Josh Rosen, Josh Allen, Baker Mayfield, or Lamar Jackson. By far, and it's not even close, the guy you want to play against the least. If your team's playing on Sunday, the person you don't want your team playing against is Lamar Jackson. Right now, Lamar Jackson is the best quarterback from his draft class. I will offer an important you know, a detail that matters. You also have to ask which quarterback plays for the best organization. Sam Darnold went to a mess. Uh, Baker Mayfield went to a mess. Josh Rosen has been treated horribly. He's been, you know, two teams now. Both are awful. So, yes, Lamar Jackson does play for a better organization. Lamar Jackson, you know, people that are, you know, Sam Darnold and Baker Mayfield fans want to hear that. But, man, Lamar Jackson fans have to be ecstatic. Lamar Jackson's playing phenomenal. He's playing better than I expected him to play. I really love the way the Ravens are using him. You know, the Ravens built their offense around his strengths. And Lamar Jackson has just leaned into it. His preparation's phenomenal. Uh, he's a talented quarterback. He's, he's incredibly gifted. And right now, based on the film, based on the way he's throwing the ball, yes, throwing, the way he's running, the way the offense is designed, based on the way he's winning games, um, when I watch Lamar Jackson, he's by far the best quarterback from his draft class, and it really isn't close. I mean, he is shredding people, and I would not want to play against Lamar Jackson at all. If I had a favorite team in the NFL, I'd say, oh, my team's playing Lamar Jackson? Oh, crap. You know, it's not a, not a feel-good thing. And so um, those are the things that matter to me. Is, is Lamar Jackson winning? How is he playing? Is, how is his evolution? Lamar Jackson's playing the quarterback position at a higher level than Sam Darnold, at a higher level than Baker Mayfield, Josh Rosen, Josh Allen. Lamar Jackson, once again, I want to repeat this, Lamar Jackson is the best quarterback from the 2018 draft class. All right, guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. When I return, we'll do Ask Zach. We have a couple questions I'm excited about, and then we'll call it a day. I hope you have a great day. Ba-dum-bum.
bam, we are done. Oh, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. That's how I end the show. I'm getting so confused. Oh, my gosh. My name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. And when I return, because we're going to come back, I promise, I promise, 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 don't turn off the show. Um, when I return, we're going to do Ask Zach. It's going to be fun. I'll be right back. All right, we are back. Uh, it's time for Ask Zach, my very favorite segment in the entire show. Um, this is the way I end every single one of my podcasts. If you support me on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Zach Schaumler. It's a dollar a month. Uh, you, you can give me more if you want. It really helps me. Um, but a dollar a month gives you access to submit questions to me on Patreon. I only accept questions on Patreon. You can send me a DM or you can send me a – it's a direct message on Patreon. Or you can comment on one of my posts on Patreon. Um, and uh, I will not guarantee if you pay the dollar a month and you send in a question, I will not guarantee to answer your question on the show. But I do guarantee I look at every single question with my eyeballs. I look at all of them. I pick the top couple at the end of uh, every show and discuss them. And then we have a couple t- today. I want to start with my favorite question I've gotten in a long, long time. And it's from a guy named Sean. Sean writes in. He says, do you think the Chiefs rely too heavily on Patrick Mahomes, or is this just being blown out of proportion by other sports analysts? Um, it's a really interesting question. Number one, the Chiefs' defense, to me, is not what it needs to be. Uh, you look at the points that the Chiefs' defense have given up. They gave up 30 points to the Lions. They gave up 31 points to the Texans. They gave up 28 points to the Baltimore Ravens, 31 points to the Packers, 23 points to the Vikings, and 35 points last weekend to the Titans. And so in order to win football games, Patrick Mahomes has to play like an MVP. If he doesn't, they don't win because they're giving up so many points on defense. So is it that's one angle where you can say, okay, the Chiefs rely far too heavily on Patrick Mahomes, rescuing them to win a game rather than playing good defense. Actually, it kind of reminds me of, for years, Aaron Rodgers has been this incredible quarterback in Green Bay. And the Packers have consistently relied on, we're going to win because we have the best quarterback, not because we play good sound football, not because we have a good defense, not because this, not because that. And it's funny to me how, wow, when you give Aaron Rodgers a good defense, he's played great this year and they've won more games because hey you got to have not just the best quarterback but also a good team the team part kind of matters and so yeah you know I, I really think you can say that the Chiefs don't support and maybe rely too heavily on Patrick Mahomes but the other question you need to ask is not just that do the Chiefs rely too heavily on Patrick Mahomes it's also does Patrick Mahomes and I, I think actually I'm not, I'm not gonna ask a question I'm gonna make a statement In my opinion, Patrick Mahomes relies a little too heavily on Patrick Mahomes. He relies too much on himself to make plays. Um, His playing style is not as precise as other quarterbacks around the league. Um, And, you know, I would even say it's not even as precise as Lamar Jackson, where his answer— so if the the Kansas City Chiefs make a play call, and it's not a good play to run against the defense they're going up against— he, his answer to solving that problem is to run around and extend a play and make something happen either with his arm, you know, wild throw downfield or a crazy play with his legs and then, then a throw downfield. And when he's confused, when Patrick Mahomes is confused or gets beaten and they're in the wrong play, his answer is to run around. Now, Tom Brady, when he's – well, first of all, Tom Brady never ends up in the wrong play. Uh, very like Maybe like once a game, literally – does Tom Brady run a play where it's a bad play call against the defense they're going against? Because Tom Brady's mastered his system. 
Tom Brady's never in a bad situation. So Patrick Mahomes, in my opinion, needs to master NFL defenses where his team is less often in a bad situation, in a bad play call against the defense they're going up against. Patrick Mahomes sees something he doesn't like, then runs around and throws the ball downfield. And that's why he got hurt this year is because he's running around so often. Patrick Mahomes uses his physical gifts, you know, the, the things that he's so good at, running, throwing, all his physical stuff. He uses those talents to make up for the bad plays and make up for bad situations, a wrong play call, where the answer is actually very simple. Change the play call or find your outlet. Be more on top of the understanding of the defense. That's the thing I really look forward to seeing Patrick Mahomes evolve in. Aaron Rodgers has been an ad-lib guy for years. This year, Aaron Rodgers still runs around, still ad-lib, still does incredible stuff that other quarterbacks can't do with his arm. But also Aaron Rodgers is finding his outlets. He is throwing the ball away less. He is changing the play and putting his team in a better position to succeed. And I want to see Patrick Mahomes do more of that in the future, rely less on his talent and more on his mind to run a great play and have a great situation against the defense they're going up against. So to answer your question, do the Chiefs rely too heavily on Patrick Mahomes? By far. Oh, of course they do. Right? They make him play. He has to play like an MVP every week or else they lose. His defense is awful. But also, the way Patrick Mahomes plays relies too heavily on himself making physical, incredible, you know, talented MVP-level plays. He's not as precise as he could be. And if he becomes more precise and learns NFL defenses better, we might see fewer crazy highlight plays. It'll be a different style of football, but it'll get hurt less, and it'll be easier on his body. So that's what I want to see in the progression I want to see from Patrick Mahomes in the future. Gabriel writes in, he says, Hey, Zach, this may not be something I want to talk about, which is fine, but as you may have seen, MSU star point guard Cassius Winston, his brother committed suicide, and the first person I thought of was you. Currently, Cassius is playing less than 24 hours since Zach passed, and I want to know your thoughts. Um, you know, Cassius Winston is an awesome player. I really enjoyed watching him. Uh, in the NCAA tournament last year in March Madness, there was that you know that moment where Tom Izzo, MSU by the way is Michigan State, where Tom Izzo, the Michigan State head coach, was yelling at a player and Winston defended him. He said, "No, no, 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 no. Our coach is our guy. We got to be better." Yada yada. I really liked his presence and his leadership in the tournament last year. Um, you know, so right after his brother died, his brother, uh, I'll spare you the details. His brother took his life, and um, he played the very you know like immediately afterwards. And had 17 points, 11 assists, and uh, they, they destroyed whoever team they're playing. Um, and uh, I, to some degree, have been in a situation similar to this. I think that's why the guy thought of me. Um, you may know that three years ago, my younger brother took his life on a Monday night. And on Tuesday morning, I went to work. And a lot of people were like, what are you doing at work? Why are you here? Your brother just died. Why aren't you home? And for me, actually, going to work really, really helped me that day because I was, a, I was a dis, just a wreck. Like When your brother dies, a, as you can imagine, uh, there's, nothing you, <laughs> there, there's nothing you can do, man. There's nothing you can do to feel uh, – it's just, it's just you're a wreck for like a while. And you got to take a break and just be – you just got to own that it's going to be really messy. And so having work to kind of distract me for the day helped me get through the grieving process. And, you know, I ended up taking Wednesday off, but Tuesday I needed to work. And being there – I wonder if Cassius Winston will play the next game. But having that basketball game to put his attention into actually, I think, was very helpful and therapeutic. In my experience, it helped me having something else to turn my attention to. When my brother died, I turned my attention to my job. And I worked the next day, and it really helped me. And then the next day, I took off and cried and just finally broke down. 
But that that 24 hour period after my brother died, I was in shock. I was like, I didn't know what to do, and I I just going to work really helped me. So I wonder if I think it's very similar for Cassius Winston, where going to work, going you know to play a game, I'm sure is therapeutic. It's his favorite thing in the world. I, I have no doubt. He's, he's a basketball player forever. Um, doing what you love and doing something else other than whatever you're doing for a little bit, that first 24-hour period really helps. I hope at some point Cassius Winston goes and, and, and grieves. And, man, it's a, he's got a long process ahead of him. Losing your brother it took me three years to get over, really. And I'm not over it, but I, to work through it. Um, and I feel so much for that young man. Uh, it's awful what he's going through. But I, there's some insight I think no one else can offer, which is playing that basketball game is really impressive. And I think it actually kind of helps in that moment to, to play basketball, to do something else and to get your mind away from it for like a couple minutes, just to the, the emotional break of it's so heavy for so long. So when you go do something else, it really, really is, is really therapeutic. Cause then w- the minute the game's over, I'm sure he broke down and just lost it again. Um, that's what I did when I left work on Tuesday after my brother died. So um, my brother also took his life. It's terrible. And I want to, that's, you know, I want to mention that real quick. If you're struggling, go get help. Uh, you know, three years ago, my younger brother took his life and it was a heartbreaking loss. And the lesson I learned is that, um, my brother never shared his struggles. He never told anybody he was having a hard time. And so I encourage you, if you are struggling, reach out to somebody in your life, go talk to them. Uh, don't suffer in silence. My brother never told anybody. I came home one day dead on the floor. I found him. Uh, it's not, not fun at all. And, uh, I also, you know, I also learned that I had to do a better job in that moment of making it clear to my brother that I loved him. Uh, I saw my brother once a week, and I, I don't think I did a good enough job reaching out to him and saying, hey, man, I love you. I'm here for you. If you're ever struggling, we can talk. Um, and so I encourage you, if you're listening, don't be afraid to have conversations with people that are deeper than video games and movies and sports or whatever. Uh, ask them how they're doing. You know, they break up with a girlfriend. How are you really doing? My, my brother had just gone through a breakup. You know, I, I didn't ask my brother a lot about the relationship, and I never asked him how he was really doing. I just said, oh, man, I'm sorry. Broke up with you, yada, yada. Um, so I encourage you make sure the people in your life know that they're loved and that they can always open up to you and talk to you and don't be afraid to have deeper conversations. The suicide hotline is 1-800-273-8255, 1-800-273-825. If you're struggling, please go get help and make it clear to the people in your life. You love them. You're there for them and you care about them. Okay. The next question, well, let's add some levity to the conversation. Let's shift away from a really uh, a brutal thing, suicide, to uh, Seb's question. Seb says, <laughs> I, love, I love this. I, I, want you to, I want you to imagine this. If you're driving, don't close your eyes. But just, just imagine um, this question as I read it. Would you rather fight one horse-sized duck, so a gigantic horse-sized duck, or 100 duck-sized horses? Would you rather fight one horse-sized duck or 100 duck-sized horses? <laughs> Oh my gosh! Um, you know, basically to me, it's ma- it's. Do you want to fight against a giant mass of of a, a big beast, or do you want to fight against a, a large number of animals? You know, a horse sized anything I think would be more difficult, right? Like a ho- a horse sized name any name any uh, like like a horse sized mouse is more difficult to fight than a hundred mice, right? Um, I think I would take the duck sized horses. Like to be to be totally frank, especially because. A big, a really gigantic, I almost, I almost cussed it. You know, I heard that didn't though. A really big um, horse-sized duck could like fly around. You forget they can fly. I mean, the thing could, 
you're fighting horses on just one plane on the ground. They're very low to the ground. I feel like, I mean, a hundred of them is a lot. Don't get me wrong. But like, I could, I could manage them if they're in one plane, just on the ground. You get this duck-sized horse, you know, this horse-sized duck, excuse me, this gigantic duck in the air flying around. Oh my gosh, it's, you can't fight against that thing. It's on the ground, it's in the air. Uh, horrifying to me. Um, you know, I, like a big flying duck sounds like something you'd fight in like a, like a video, like a Final Fantasy boss or something. Like, wh- <laughs> what the heck? A, a gigantic duck flying around. Like, it sounds terrifying. Oh, oh my gosh, think about this. Um, this is totally, <laughs> maybe bad. Imagine how big the poop would be from a gigantic horse-sized duck. Like, just bombs out of the sky. Like, ah, plop right on the table. You know, what is that, honey? You're like, you're like sitting in your car. What is that? Oh my gosh. Like, <laughs> oh, I think it's, uh, it had to relieve itself. Like, <laughs> horrifying. So yeah, I would much rather fight, um, a hundred duck sized horses than a gigantic horse sized duck. There's my answer. I hope you enjoyed that. I had fun. The, the question just made me, my girlfriend and I were laughing about it last night. Yeah. I got this question for strong opinion sports. that just made me laugh. Um, Devinator writes in, Devinator says, what position do you think is the most undervalued or underappreciated on an NFL team, on offense and defense? Um, on offense, it's very easy to me. It's the offensive line. Like, these are people that, you know, you hear about, the Vikings are the biggest culprit of this right now, is you hear about all these star players, the quarterback, the running back, the receiver, the tight end, and you never hear, nobody knows the names of the offensive linemen. The offensive line is so important. Look at what the Colts are doing. I know the Colts just lost to the Dolphins. But the Colts have really surprised a lot of people this year with how good they are. And it's because of their linemen. Their offensive line is phenomenal. Their defensive line is great. The front seven is incredible. Offensive linemen are the unsung heroes of football. Always. I don't care what, like who you are. Nobody ever seems to celebrate offensive linemen and give them the credit they deserve. Offensive linemen are the most underappreciated position in all of sports. Now, on defense, the guy that I think is underappreciated is the nickelback. Uh, the nickelback is the number three cornerback that comes into a game. His job. So when a team brings in more receivers, the answer is to substitute in, substitute in another lankier, quicker guy to cover that receiver. So like you, you don't want a linebacker trying to guard Julian Edelman. So what you do is you bring in another corner, a third. You know, if you have a corner on the right and the left. You bring in your third corner who's really good at covering to blanket guys like Julian Edelman. That guy gets no love. Nobody ever appreciates that guy. The reason why the Rams were so successful on defense the year they went to the Super Bowl is they had Aqib Tlaib and Marcus Peters. And then I, you know, I, I even, I'm even culprit of this. I forget the guy's name right now. They had a really good corner from some other team that came in and was phenomenal. He was their nickelback corner, their third. I think it went to the Jaguars now. But he was a, their third string like corner who came into the game when teams had more receivers. And his job was to cover guys like Julian Edelman and whatever. And he was great. And so that's the guy who gets no love. He's not on the field all the time. But a, a nickel corner, a guy who comes into the game and plays against receivers, and his job is to cover. He's not as good a tackler. He's got one job, and it's to cover receivers when they, the team brings in more receivers. The nickel corner Gets no love and respect in the NFL. Nobody, nobody like even knows their. I don't even know the guy's name, but he did a great. It was like it was like Shepard or I can't, I can't I I can't remember for the life of me I can't remember his name, um, but he was awesome and um, in fact they he did such a good job in the Super Bowl that the Patriots had to literally design new plays. How do how do we beat this guy? 
the, the Patriots literally like in the second half of the Super Bowl against the Rams were like, we, we don't know how to beat him. We don't know how to beat the, you know, they're, they're shutting us down. And the Patriots had to come up with new play designs specifically to beat that guy because he was doing so well. I forget his name right now, like Lito Shepard or I, uh, Aaron Shepard. I can't, I can't remember his name. It's not either of those names. The point is um, cornerbacks, you know, the third corner, the nickelback, is the most underappreciated position probably on defense because nobody knows they're in the game. Nobody pays attention to them very much, but they're phenomenal. And they're not paid very highly. Like they're they're just not they're just not a big deal because they're not always on the field, but they have a big impact on teams' wins and loss records. And uh, when a guy has a big game, like a big slot receiver kills it, it's because the nickel corner had a bad jo- did a bad job and wasn't very good for the opposing defense. Th- the next question is from Ben. I love Ben's question. It's a follow up to something I said earlier. Uh, ben writes in. If I can never get my phone to load, Ben says, "Hey Zach." So I know you really despise stats and people giving them loads of weight. But I wondered, what do you think about teams like the Ravens who use analytics heavily when preparing for a game as well as during games to help them make decisions situationally? Hope that question makes sense. Ben from England. From Ben in England. Wow, I, I butchered the end of that. Uh, ben, I really love your question, and I really like the way you propose using analytics. Um, the best use of analytics is to understand situations. In my opinion, like whether it's you know that statistically this team runs the ball a ton on third down or in third and 12, they call wheel routes or whether you're saying maybe it's, um, it's, it's fourth down. We have a higher percentage of winning. We have a 68% of chance to win. If we go for it on fourth down right here, let's go for it on fourth down. Situationally analytics are very valuable because it helps you call your defense. Okay. Traditionally, on blank down, on third down, second down, whatever, they run this play. We're going to call this defense to stop that. It's knowing tendencies. Analytics help you understand tendencies. Or you'll say, okay, it's, we're trying to decide. Do we kick a field goal here or do we go for it on fourth down and try to get the first down? If you have analytics and a numbers guy that says, well, the numbers say you're going to win uh, 75% of the time when you whatever – whatever it is, right? And then you can sleep at night because you say we went for it on fourth down. We failed, but we followed the numbers. We had a specific – reason we knew that if we got it we had a super high chance of percentage of winning and if we didn't get it the percentage of losing was actually lower so it didn't really matter right situationally analytics are very important but player evaluation specifically like the nfl draft is is a a key culprit of this when you're trying to evaluate say a quarterback uh dwayne haskins had incredible stats last year but kyler murray was the better quarterback I didn't care about the numbers. I wanted to see the way they played football. The film doesn't lie. Your tendencies, your habits, the way you throw the ball, uh, your footwork, yada, yada. Those are things that don't show up on, in statistics but really, really matter and impact the way you play. Um, the Patriots are notorious for being really good at scouting other NFL teams. The way the Patriots can watch film on a player and say, okay, Nobody – like Danny Woodhead is a great example. They saw something in Danny Woodhead on a film and said, we're going to take Danny Woodhead, we're going to bring him into our offense and just utilize his ability to catch the ball as a running back. And they did that, and it was phenomenal. And the Patriots over and over again take players who are underappreciated and not valued by other teams and say, you're not good at X, Y, Z, but you're great at this one thing. We saw it on film. We're going to hire you to do this one thing. I don't care about your other crap. Don't do it. Do this one thing I'm hiring you to do really, really well. 
and we're going to underpay you, but you're going to play phenomenal, lead the league in whatever it is, because we know you're good at this one thing. And that's not a statistical thing. I, I guess maybe, but really it's what you see on film. And so to me, film is so important when you evaluate players. Um, you know, and analysts really kill me. You know, people will say that, a great example is I did a, I did a topic earlier on the show about Joe Burrow and Alabama. And I could have just said, you know, Joe Burrow had a great game. He had three touchdowns and left it there. And a lot of people do that. And a lot of people in the sports world don't explain why someone's good. They just say, hey, three touchdowns, that's good. Three touchdowns doesn't mean good. Three touchdowns could have been you, you had a three screen passes for a touchdown and they ran for 99 yards. And so it made you look like you had almost 300 yards passing, but really you did none of the work. Stats aren't everything is my point. I would rather people and analysts not mention the stats and say, I think stats are valuable, right? And they're, they're, they're a benchmark and a, a level of understanding. But what I hate is when people, and especially analysts on TV are, are notorious for this. They'll say, he had three touchdowns. It's great. It's like, well, what's the number? You, just, you literally just looked at the box score. You didn't watch the game. What are the numbers behind the stats? What did he do? Was it footwork? Was it accuracy? Was it arm strength? Was it this? Was it a great catch? What is the story behind the numbers? And so that's why, that's my war on stats is numbers are not bad. I think I made it, I think I was a little too harsh last week. I didn't, I intentionally didn't make it a breakout. I think I want to redo it someday. Is I made it sound like numbers are bad. Numbers and statistics are not bad, but they're used to augment your argument. They're a part of something. They're not the entire story when it comes to evaluating a player. Situational analysis or going forward on fourth down or knowing what play call to call on third down, use numbers and use statistics. That's a great use of them. My point is when you say why someone's good, don't just say their numbers. I hope you explain what they do that caused them to have great numbers. Why did Joe Burrow have three touchdowns? Did he just have three touchdowns? He's not good just because he had three touchdowns. He was incredibly accurate. He understood good matchups. He made great decisions. He had moxie late in the game. He extended plays well. He did a lot of little things right. Those things are substance, and they matter. When you say a guy had three touchdowns, there's no substance to that statement. It drives me nuts. I hate it, and I want to hear more from the world of sports when they offer analysis on players. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. That's all I have. I hope you enjoyed Ask Zach. I hope you have a great day. And uh, enjoy the game tonight, Thursday Night Football, between the Browns and the Steelers, I believe. Uh, I'll be talking about it tomorrow. I'm doing another show tomorrow. Um, I apologize that this has taken so long. I have a film analysis of Jimmy Garoppolo coming out. I have a film analysis of DK Metcalf coming. Oh, man, I can't wait. I'm going to shut up. Enjoy the show tomorrow. Enjoy the show today. Have a great day. Bam, bam, bam. We are done.